This episode is supported in part by Gateway Film Center, a nonprofit cinema committed to supporting storytellers. Authentic stories can inspire new ideas, entertain, push boundaries, spark new levels of empathy, and advance social change. To learn more about their program and plan your visit for award season weekend, please visit gatewayfilmcenter.org. Oh, wrong house. No, the right house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. Bobby, Claire, about whom you've heard so much. You're having a baby? Didn't Jonathan tell you? I didn't know you two were, um... Lovers? We're not. Most parents aren't lovers. Mine were. I think you need a new haircut. I never really, you know, think about it. Well, I do. Bobby, what do you like about me? What? Do you think I'm attractive? Absolutely, I do. Well, there's just no smooth or sophisticated way to do this, is there? Where is everybody? Doesn't this all seem sort of strange? No, man. It's perfect. Bobby, I'm starting to feel a little extra. I just want everybody to be happy. What if I just couldn't do this? Hello and welcome to the This Head Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast with a case of the cobbler barfs. Every week on This Head Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with my favorite baker himbo, Joe Reed. Do you like my haircut? It went from anachronistic pre-80s to anachronistic post-80s. I hope you uh, I hope you enjoy it. Do you, uh, do you mean, uh, did I like your wig that we just took off your head? <laughs> oh, that wig. The hairstyles in this. The only, the only person who remains timeless, naturally, is Sissy Spacek. Well, yes. Yeah. The Sissy Spacek look will never go out of style, and we're happy for it. Um, oh, <laughs> Time out for half a second. They're vacuuming downstairs. This will almost certainly get picked up on the audio. So if you are listening to this and there is vacuuming in the background that is happening in my home, there is no way I'm going to be able to extricate it from the audio. So just, um, you're not going crazy. There is uh, some. I mean, vacuuming. if you have to use the backup audio for a second, I absolutely cannot hear it. There's no backup audio that won't pick this up. Like anything, like... It's fine. It's 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 not a problem. I just want to give our listeners a uh, an explanation. This isn't quite a, a glimpse a... behind the post production curtain. Yes, exactly, exactly. Ah, okay. We were just traumatized by the early people who um, didn't like our audio. Oh yeah, I'll never get over that. Truly, we'll never get over it. Early iTunes reviews will stay with you forever. It is a thing that lives in your RNA along with uh, uh, the vaccine and yeah, all of that. Truly, God forbid you, um, as an independent podcast, not be entirely uh, perfect. <laughs> um, anyway, anyway, we are we we are not here to um, go through past trauma. We are here to talk about uh, a little movie that um, I'm really excited to see or hear. Um, we do not do video chat. Um, hear your thoughts on this movie because. 
I had already seen this movie. Yeah, as had I. A lot of it had kind of escaped my memory, aside from Robin Wright's hair. We'll get into it. Right, we will. Um, I really think I liked this movie a lot. I did too. So I had seen this movie back when it came out. I had also, previous to the movie, read the book, Michael Cunningham's book. After I had seen The Hours, I think it was, okay, I, th- I think my progression was, I saw The Hours movie, then I read The Hours book. And then, because I was such a fan of both, I read A Home at the End of the World, which was Michael Cunningham's prior novel to The Hours. And I read this book around the time... I came out in my 20s. I've mentioned this before. I I read this book around the general sort of time period that I was coming out. And it really stuck with me. It really sort of, you know, hit me... Uh, in in the feels, as I they we did not say then, but you know, we we also don't say now, but we said at some point maybe six years. We ago as by we you mean our collective the culture, um, the col- the culture of that we uh, belong with of uh, moms on Facebook. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, at some in point in in our history, people said the feels, and that's what this uh, this book gave me. Um, so it was very, very special. It was very uh, important to me. And then the movie came out, and the movie was, by a lot of measures, a disappointment in terms of the expectations maybe that people had for it. Obviously, Colin Farrell's career was really at a sort of like a red-hot place, but we'll talk about his... There was there was not exactly Colin Farrell backlash happening, but like there were Colin Farrell troubles that were happening around this time, yes, and we'll talk about yes, that. We'll talk about that. Um, but there there was there was a sense of letdown to this movie, and I was worried that then watching it again all these many years later, that I would find a lot of the flaws in it, and especially in the early going. I did, and maybe for the first half an hour to 45 minutes of this movie, I was like, oh, this is, like, worse than I remember. And then it... it And then Sissy Spacek shows up? Well, sort of. Like, she's a big part of it. Although the interesting thing about Sissy Spacek in this movie is she's a much bigger character in the book. In the book, the mm-hmm. book is one of those books where um, each chapter is is sort of narrated by a different character. And it sort of hops oh. back. It's it's Jonathan's perspective, and then it's Bobby's, and then it's Claire's. But Sissy Spacek's character, Ruth, am I wrong? She just always seems like a Ruth when she plays characters like this. Um, she was a POV character as well. And you got more of her interiority. You got more of sort of her story as she was... Um, the thing where, like, uh, she gets sort of turned on to Laura Nero in that scene where she's smoking pot with the kids. And there's sort of a an awakening and kind of a sad realization of sort of like, well, here's where I am in life. Sort of the, an extension to that mm. conversation she has with Robin Wright's character. Um, Which is absolutely all there in uh, Sissy Spacek's expression. Absolutely. Like, the performance is spot on, but there's more, like, you just get more of her character. And I get why that was kind of cut out. It's sort of hard to, it would be hard for this movie as it's building the storyline with the three characters in New York to constantly sort of be like now, and now we go back to mom back in Phoenix or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's more there, but I think there's also just this movie um, kind of hurries itself to get to the point where it's 
the movie that it's about. Do you know what I mean? Where it gets mm-hmm. to the point where it's the three of them in New York in this very sort of unconventional family. And to me, there's a sort of rocky road to get to that point. But once it does, I was like, oh, right. This is like, by the time they're dancing on that porch at, at, towards the end of the movie, I was like, all right, I remember now. This is why this was why and how this book really like, you know, struck to the heart of me. And yeah, it's by the end of it, I was just like, this is a good movie. This is a good story. This is well done. The performances, which I wasn't totally like at the beginning, I literally wrote down in my notes, I was like, was Colin Farrell miscast in this in this film? And by the I think end, not at all. I think he's great. I think by the end, I, I, I remembered that as well. I think he's really, really good in it. And um, yeah, so I'm glad to hear you sort of you you felt that way, too, that you really liked this movie. It's definitely a movie. I feel like. I would stick up for and recommend at this point. It's not perfect. I think no. all of the performances are great. I think everybody is cast really interestingly, but not miscast. I mean, maybe Sissy Spacek, it like makes complete sense, but like, yeah, it captures a certain part of Colin Farrell. You don't see very often. Yes. Dallas Roberts has a really interesting like breakthrough here. Robin Wright, the same thing with Colin Farrell. Like you don't really see her in a certain mode, but I just always think Robin Wright is someone who always understands the assignment. Um, Robin Wright in this movie, I was so, I forgot that like, I'm not used to seeing Robin Wright play. um, Like when I say bright, I don't mean intelligence wise. I mean, sort of personality wise, sort of like upbeat. Yes. And also like chatty characters. Like she sort Mm -hmm. of has gotten to a point where it's just like, she seems stoic and and reserved and kind of um you know a crouching tiger of a of a woman in in, in many of her parts and mm-hmm. in this she's just like again there's a brightness there's a chattiness a a uh, um i don't know it's 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 a different robin wright mode uh both before her career in this part and and after that it's it's kind of exciting to see her i will way. say i probably had the opposite trajectory as you in terms of this watch of the movie. Oh, interesting. Where, like, the movie built for you, whereas, like, I think it kind of flounders in maybe, like, the last half hour in a way that, like, it feels like it's speeding through a lot of these things while still, like, you know, taking these emotional beats so you can check in with each of the three characters to see where they're at. But, like, it doesn't really linger on enough to allow it to still be interesting or complicated. Oh, that's complicated. interesting that you thought that. It feel, I feel like it kind of loses a little bit of gas when it's... Um, yeah, I feel the exact kind of opposite through the story. I felt really like it, it, felt, it felt rushed in the beginning and, and it felt relaxed towards the end. That was my experience of mm. it. Interesting. See, and I feel like it spends a little bit more time with the interesting things, which is like the emotional truth of these characters and what their circumstances, which we don't, we don't really see relationships like this on screen. No, really. No. Um, well, and the other thing that I found interesting is the whole hook of this film is an unconventional family dynamic, right? How do they, mm-hmm. they've built, you know, they've this home at the end of the world, this, this thing that they've built is this family that is very much nonconventional. And even in 2004, when this film was made, 
there was a novelty to that. This sort of, you know, is it polyamorous? One is in love with the other. Who's in love with the third one? Or maybe not. But they all, you know, there's uh, emotion that ties them together. But, you know. uh, I do have two questions for you. I'm glad you read the book because I wanted to know, even though Michael Cunningham adapted his own book, I did want to know if there were things that were excised from the movie to make it a little bit more palatable, because even in 2004, this was like definitely considered a gay movie. And like at that time there were still like measures taken to make things more palatable for straight audiences. We still do it, but like to the best of my recollection. And again, it's been 15 years, maybe more since I've read this book. And there's also like for his, I use Wikipedia as a crutch a lot, and sometimes that crutch is <laughs> looking to refresh myself on plots that I had forgotten. And the Wikipedia page for the novel A Home at the End of the World is very lacking in that regard. It's, and I really it's a synopsis. Basically. I could I could and it, and like not even like the movie synopsis is a lot more detailed. Like the the book synopsis is very quick. I could use a Spark Notes on this for sure. Um, but to the best of my recollection, I don't believe there are say sexual encounters between Bobby and Jonathan as adults. I don't that like was I, one of my questions. Like there's like there's that longing there, but I don't think or or like or you what you might even expect like the three of them to all have sex together at some point and I don't believe that is a thing that was in the book at all. And the stuff that happens when they're teenagers is pretty faithful as to my recollection of the book where the thing where they sort of jerk each other off when they're sleeping over the one night that to me is was, was basically definitely how like it a happened and bl- interrupted blowy situation. There definitely was that night. as well and I and again to the best of my recollection that is also what happened in the book but maybe I'll read my the book again favorite ska band interrupted blowing <laughs> but let's i want to get into a little bit more especially about the sort of the the teenage portion of this movie but i want to get to the other side of the plot description before i do so um can i ask my other question yeah, yeah, yeah. i feel like oh, yeah. i know the answer because you might have you would have mentioned it already yeah but it felt like an undercurrent i just want to know if it was acknowledged like does alice have sex with Bobby. Alice, right. That's not Ruth. It's Alice, of course. Ruth is her character in the bedroom. No. No. There's or that... is there like a sexual twinge there? I think it's all subtext. Like even when you get her like POV chapters, I don't believe she ever talks about sort of any kind of odd desire for Bobby. Although, again, it's been a while. She's like mystified by him. She's taken in by him and like... yeah. But he's it's more a, in like the book. It's more old boy, so he's not really flirting with her. But right. like he sparks something in her that would be like if some man had flirted with her. It's not necessarily yes. about who it is. It's about what um, he, for lack of a less cheesy word, like ignited in her. Right. And I think Sissy SpaceX performance like is complicated in a way that's interesting and not reductive like the words i chose to describe it what as Um, i recall that in the book is more of a springboard for her it's a jumping off point for her to sort mm of um examine herself and it's it's less to read it now it's less about there's more of her Yeah, it's less about Bobby, because it really is a very sort of, like, he becomes, like, another son to her and her husband. Uh It's very, like, very much that. And there is that scene 
with Spacek and Colin Farrell towards the end. And part of me is just like, is it just because I feel like everybody should be wanting to have sex with Colin Farrell at all times? And is that it? Because um, I get <laughs> That's it. That's another reason why he's perfectly cast in this movie. <laughs> also that. Also that. Um, but there is definitely, there's a there's a subtextual sort of like sexual pull in that scene that is works as, as subtext, but I don't think is ever meant to be text. I was worried that it, I mean, like, I asked this not to be like, Alice is a creep, because I don't think that's what's going on there. I don't think it's, like, fully sexual. But, like, I I just wanted to make sure that this, the movie wasn't glossing over any inappropriate behavior. The other thing Uh, is, I, as a reader, famously I can't read, but also as a reader, I am not the most, um attuned to things like oh well this is what's really happening like this is what's in the text but this is what's really happening so like i could go back and read it again and be like oh this was here the whole time and i never really noticed it then i would maybe have a problem but But i don't um, but i really don't believe that that's i don't i don't think that that was ever really a thing again listeners who uh who have read this book more recently or remember it better let us know if i'm up a creek and i'm guessing few listeners have seen this movie um because uh we'll get into well except Um, if any demographic is going to have seen this movie it's the demographic that listens to our podcast so yeah um I think what it is for her, and I say that it like it, you know it reinvigorates something in her, the same way that it does with her son Jonathan, and the same way it does with Claire when um, uh, uh, when uh, Bobby comes to live with them in New York, and like I'll just say this, and then we can move on to the plot description so that we can really talk about it because I can tell we're already like really into discussing this. Um, it as much as this movie is about like families and unconventional families too i think it's really interested in like pre-existing families yeah and the complications of like when you add a new ingredient into the dynamic it can really become you know the best version of what everybody wants a family unit to be but then it also does make it more complicated. And I think the movie yeah. really asks, you know, is there like, is there a stopwatch on right that type of dynamic? Like, you know, does it, does, you know, the, uh, I don't want to say like, does the perfect family unit have a shelf life? You know, it's wow. Not like Hello, it's Carrie more... Bradshaw. I had to, I, I couldn't help but wonder. I couldn't help but wonder. <laughs> Wait, what would lead to her saying, does a perfect family unit have a shelf life? Like, she's dating somebody who works at a grocery store, or like... Alice starts writing a sex column in Arizona. (laughs) I couldn't help but wonder. (laughs) Right, after a trip to, like, the Kroger or something like that, and she picks up something off the shelf and it has an expiration date. And she, and that sort of sets her off on that metaphor. Yeah, I like it. I'm into it. Um, No, but it, it, it is very much like pre-existing like family units whether it is something like what uh jonathan and claire have in new york right how you know you add a person into the mix or you change circumstance and then you know everybody can live this happy beautiful life but it's all fleeting anyway and i think one of the movie's big weaknesses actually is that it doesn't 
care enough about adding a baby into this dynamic. Like it, it's sort of yeah. It there's <laughs> there's a way in which the ba- the baby is pure plot device in this, and the fact that and again we'll say it in the plot description, but also spoiler, but also like watch this movie before you listen to this podcast if you care about that spoilers that much. Um, when Claire leaves with the baby. And I'm just like, I'm not sure this film nor the novel is grappling enough with how much of an emotional toll that would have taken on both of the boys that like this child that they, you know, raised and in in Bobby's case, uh, fathered. Let alone the child. (laughs) Right. Like left. Like and and and, you know, and it's another sort of like it's another loss for Bobby, who has lost so many family members over the years. And yeah, Bobby literally loses everything. And I'm sure and I'm sure in the book there was more there was, you know, it dealt with Bobby's emotions about that in general. But like in general, I'm like, this would be devastating (laughs) like well and because it's so traumatic and horrible and horrifying at the beginning of the movie it kind of makes you expect something as absolutely like dark and grim and traumatizing throughout the whole movie and i appreciated that it avoided that even though we know what's coming for jonathan that's not on screen right that's you know that's not what that character's entire story gets to be right um right exactly so and like the same way that claire leaving she's not defined by leaving right right her character is more than that but i just i do feel like it just needs to have a little bit more of an understanding of the emotional impact of adding a child to this family and then subtracting a child from that family that it would have taken. I also think that maybe once the baby actually arrives, that it, it, that's like right when it clicks in with me that the movie starts to kind of lose its depth to me because like it becomes about a lot more of the like facile things about what wouldn't work about this dynamic in the time that they live. Yeah. And like, that's fine if the movie is kind of about that, that, like, the basic strictures of, like, purely straight, purely nuclear unit yeah. life is so, like, demanding or so, like, obstructive in our time that, like, they couldn't live in the way that they would want to. Right. Um, but the movie isn't about that. You also can get no sense of how... And again, I think this is part of the design because of the idea that they are, they have built this little world for themselves separate from everything. They go off into upstate. It does have a very kind of New Yorkers view of just like, well, they moved to upstate New York, which is basically the ends of the earth. And there's like, (laughs) they found a little colony on like a remote island, you know, away from everything. And it's just like, it's just the Hudson Valley, y'all. Like there are people. And there's there's a little bit of an acknowledgement when they show them working at the little cafe that they start and whatever, that there are customers and there are regulars. The cafe that's built on, that's like, based on the home that they've built for themselves right though, like right but but they're there at least they interact with the community a little bit but in general yeah. there's very little sense of how this community in the 1980s in the hudson valley of upstate new york would react to this strange family unit and and the movie's not really concerned with that and that's fine like that's not what the movie's about but i was curious at times of just like what does the community make of these, you know, two uh, proprietors of 
this restaurant that they go to being two thirds of a thruple living in this sort of like wonderful little country home with a daughter and they're, you know, the woman living with them has, you know, big pink hair with awful bangs and, and, uh, you know, all this other sort of stuff. But let me tell you, honey, Courtney Cox's scream three. I thought of it plenty. Walked. Yep. So that Sharon Stone's basic instinct ah! two ah! bangs ah! could run, so that Robin Wright's a home at the end of the world bangs could run a marathon. Could hurdle. Could run the hundred meter hurdles, my friend. Absolutely. Pentathlon. Whatever yeah, pen- that is. Pentathlon bangs. Those are pentathlon bangs, and that is on that. Okay. Um let's do the sixty second plot description. Let's do it. Guys. Once again, we are here to talk about A Home at the End of the World, directed by stage director Michael Mayer. We will get into that. Uh, written by Michael Cunningham based on his own novel, starring Colin Farrell, Dale- Dallas Roberts, Robin Wright, and Sissy Spacek. There's some other people, including an uncredited Wendy Crewson, but really... Wait, who is Wendy Crewson in this? I totally missed her. Wendy Crewson is Colin Farrell's mom. Oh, sad. In the party scene. Yeah. yeah, Matt yeah. Frewer's in it. Matt no Frewer plays Jonathan's father, who, of course, I mostly know as A, the neighbor's dad in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, um, and also uh, the trash can man in the stand miniseries from the 1990s. <laughs> <laughs> also, is he Max Headroom? Am I wrong? Is that... I can't... Yeah, I'm, I'm probably not the person to ask that question. Now I'm going to uh, click on into... Yes, he was Max Headroom from the 1980s, who basically exists as like, was he in a thing or was it just commercials? I can't remember. I genuinely can't remember. It's one of those 80s things like... Well, I was going to say like Alf, but I have a much better con- like grasp on what Alf was to the, uh, to the culture because he had a show. Anyway. Great. Uh, the movie <laughs> premiered... Shut up. Uh, I love no, when they do I that. Think, well, I'll I go think... on a tangent, and you're just like, anyway. You do that, too, please. Um, <laughs> um, no, I liked that tangent. That was a positive grade. That was not a shut the fuck up grade. <laughs> dare you. It's a thin line. It's a thin line. I get it. I get it. <sighs> Whatever. Um, the movie <laughs> premiered. That was not a good <laughs> grade or whatever. That was a shut up. Um, anyway, A Home at the End of the World premiered at the New York Gay and Lesbian Film Festival of June 9th, 2004, and then opened limited July 23rd of 2004. Joe. Yes. Are you ready to give us a 60-second plot description of Michael Cunningham's, uh, Michael Mayer's, Michael Cunningham's <laughs> A Home at the End of the World? Yes. Yes, I will. All right, then, Joe, your 60-second plot description starts now. Okay, Bobby is played by Colin Farrell, but before that, he's a kid who, at age nine, sees his older brother, who he idolizes, die in a freak accident. And then as a teen, he loses his mom and then his dad. Meanwhile, he strikes up a friendship with nerdy and closeted Jonathan, and they end up experimenting sexually, and it's all very sweet. And when Jonathan moves away to New York City, Bobby lives with Jonathan's parents, including mom, Sissy Spacek. But then he's an adult Colin Farrell in a bad wig, and he moves to 1980s New York to live with Jonathan and his straight girl roommate, Claire, played by Robin Wright. Jonathan and Claire have a vague bohemian plan to have a baby together, but 
it's actually Claire and Bobby who end up in a sexual relationship after she cuts his hair so he'll look more like Colin Farrell. 30 seconds. Jonathan, who has always been in love with Bobby, feels left out of this arrangement and flees to Phoenix where his parents are living and then his dad dies and Bobby and Claire come to the funeral and it's tense but then Claire says she's pregnant and the three decide to raise the baby together at this big old house in Woodstock and it's nice for a while until Jonathan starts getting signs that he has AIDS and Claire can't handle the arrangement anymore uh, not to do with the AIDS but like the the family arrangement and leaves with the baby so by the end Bobby stays with Jonathan to care for his friend and it ends with Jonathan sick and likely dying and Bobby's probably going to end up alone and it's very sad but it's also kind of sweet the end and that's uh, well you got that just a few seconds under time so good job not a lot of Alice in that description though no, but I think there's not a lot of Alice in the plot of the film, really, either. See, she's an integral dynamic to it, though, and not just because we love uh, actresses of a certain age. Um, not not like, that, though. No, but that thing that I was saying where it's like the perfect unit, like, uh, this movie is about, like, adding the one thing to a pre-existing dynamic. Yeah that changes it and makes it like the perfect thing and there's a point in the movie where alice is the thing where it's like yeah but why are you going home you could just stay like right she's going back to arizona to live alone but it's like she because she comes and basically it feels like by the time she leaves she comes to deliver her husband's ashes to her son right um because that's the last thing she does before she leaves um that definitely yeah, makes more like sense in the book because, again, you get more of a sense of what her life is and, mm. you know, her sort of like being on her path. And I think a lot of it was that she, if she stuck around with them in New York, she'd be Jonathan's mother there. Do you know what I mean? And she's not, sure. you know, this is a, and Bobby's mother as well, really. And, and it's not really, that's not where her life is now. And she's, you know, at least doing things on her own and that kind of a thing. But I want to talk about the beginning of the movie specifically because, well, first of all, A, the scene in the book where the brother dies was so traumatizing to me. It's so incredibly sad. And, it's a lot in the movie. And it's and it happens the same way in the book where he walks through a closed plate glass door and slices well, his neck open. High. Right, while he's high, and he slices his neck open, and he dies in front of everybody, and it's horrifying in the book, especially because you get a little bit more time with Bobby and his brother, and you really just get the sense of how much he idolizes and loves his brother, and the movie communicates that actually very well. Um, but it's horrifying, and I it's scarred. I was scarred by it. I was just so incredibly, and I was just like, how are they going to do this in the movie? Because in the book, it's just like you can't you. It happens before you realize it's happening in the book, and all of a sudden it's just like, oh my god. And in the movie, like, it's also incredibly well done and incredibly just like, and seeing it, seeing him sort of pull that piece of glass out of his neck and then his neck starts bleeding. And it's so terrifying and scarring. And I really, I kind of love that actor who hasn't, I haven't seen him anything in years, but at that time, he had been in. That film, Imaginary Heroes with Sigourney Weaver, where... Uh-huh, uh, Emil- which we could talk about. Which we could. I don't know how much we would love to talk about Emil Hirsch at this point. But, like, Emil Hirsch is her exactly. son. And he and this boy plays his best friend. And they have a scene where they sort of, like, make out and maybe more. And I, of course, 
was only interested in scenes like that in any movie when I was in my early 20s. <laughs> and so that was very uh, impactful. And also at that same time, he was on the OC. He was on like one of the middle seasons of the OC, playing one of those. Every season, it seemed like in the middle portion, they had to introduce somebody else whom Marissa was either dating or sort of friends with who would isolate her a little bit from like Ryan and, and you know, Seth and Summer and all that. And he, I can't remember whether his character on that show was gay or whether it just sort of seemed like he might be, but that never became canon. Um, but he was like, that was sort of like, he was on a bunch of these things sort of at that same time. Ryan Donahue is, uh, is his name. And I liked him. And I'm sort of, I'm kind of sad that, uh, that he's not in uh, other things anymore. How did that play to you as somebody who had not read the book? The brother? Yeah. And the or way, the death? The both. Both of that. I mean, I think ultimately by the end of the movie, that whole early sequence before we meet Jonathan takes so long um, that, like, it really does kind of, like, I kind of wish what you're describing for the book, it was what the movie was, that it feels more balanced among these characters because yeah. it really does shift the dial towards making it Bobby's movie. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I thought those scenes were really good and, like, conveyed the weight of that relationship. Um, and kind of, Bobby, I think, is a tricky character later on in the movie, but I think because those scenes give you a really good foundation of who he is and who he becomes in terms of being... Uh, just kind of very accepting of things on their face, but not right. the most. Um, not to say he lacks depth, but he's somewhat an uncomplicated person. Feels uncomplicated yeah. about the kind of love that he has for the people that he loves. Um, Getting the interiority of Bobby from the book, I think, was very important, and it's very hard to do in a movie because X. Ex- on the exterior, he doesn't give much, and that's sort of by design. And reading the book, you get to obviously, like, you know, see what he's thinking and, and you know, sort of, like, nestle into his brain a little bit. And um, you don't get that in the in the uh, movie version so much. And I, and I get why that would be a challenge to be able to do. I do think Farrell's performance, especially as the movie goes on, gets you there a little bit better. Um, he's really good at sort of letting you in a little bit, bit by bit in terms of like what is motivating him, even if he is supposed to be kind of a mystery to the other two, the mystery mm-hmm. to Jonathan and to Claire uh, pretty much throughout. Um, but the other thing, the part where, so then they age Bobby up a little bit and he's a teenager and we meet Jonathan who are teenagers. And I don't want to sort of criticize kid actors, but I do feel like it's a stronger movie if they were would have been able to cast teens who were better able to convey, especially with Jonathan, I think, their emotions and sort of what they are feeling about their their lives and about each other and in the book it's such a rich part of the book the sort of their teen lives and watching that uh, you know following them kind of uh grow so close and i don't know if there's 
I think when we meet Jonathan as an adult, as Dallas Roberts, it takes a minute to sort of ramp up to who he is, because I don't think there's much of a connection between teen Jonathan and 20-something Jonathan. And, I would agree with that. And I, I think it it lets it makes the viewer sort of take a little bit to sort of feel like they know Jonathan. That's less of a problem with Bobby, but it's not no problem with Bobby. Um, and I think I think stronger teen performances would have helped this movie out a lot. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. And I think, well, the focus is on Bobby the whole time. Like, definitely Jonathan is the one that's kind of the back burner of that portion of the movie because that's also when Alice is introduced and Sissy Spacek is so good, especially in that first pot smoking scene. The Laura Nero scene. Yeah, it's really, really fantastic. She's exceptional in that scene. Um yeah, that that makes complete sense to me because you get Bobby's bond with Jonathan and what Jonathan means to him right. when like he takes himself to New York, but it's it's it leaves Jonathan to kind of be the mystery when it right. should be a little bit more of the other way around. And in the um, book he's not in the book especially as a teenager, you're really it feels like you're in it with Jonathan the most and mm-hmm. It really get like it grounds you in his character in a way that I think is necessary. That the movie just doesn't quite get you there. Well, and I think it's maybe one of the movie's other minor faults is that Jonathan is never as complex as Claire and Bobby are, right? Um, or at least it, a lot of his journey is things that we've seen before. Though I think Dallas Roberts is great, and I think he's gives great. Us a complicated version of maybe a story we've seen before right um or at least his arc you know of the way he loves bobby and it's perhaps not as requited as he wants it to be but it's not fully Um, unrequited either which is what i like about that dynamic i i like it too and see i just really like bobby as a character in this dynamic too because like this is probably more of a queer movie than it is a gay movie right and like not to like uh you know state it wrongly here but like you know bobby isn't that sexual of a creature and they say that in the film like jonathan actually says that to claire i'm just like i'm not entirely sure you know what Bobby is and when he's trying to sort of like sum up his sexuality and that mm-hmm. and that is true like there is he's he's undefined as definition almost well and the romance that he has for Claire is the same thing I feel like that's the same romance that's the same type of affection that he shows towards Jonathan but like he has sex with Claire right. is the different but like I don't think that they fucked all that much to be honest and I mean when you go back to their teenage years like he had sexual experiences with Jonathan even if it wasn't like you know fucking but like it's you know sex comes in all forms and <laughs> like and so in in terms I don't of think he was that sexual right in terms of the language of the movie we see him and John his char- like as characters not as Colin Farrell obviously but like we see Bobby as a character he has one sex scene sort of one and a half sex scenes with Jonathan and one sex scene really with Claire and um so there's like there's a balance to that as well yeah and I think it's it's pretty clear to me, at least, that, and, you know, 
it, I think this is something we're still grappling with as a culture that like he can be romantically inclined towards both of the other characters yeah. if maybe sexually inclined or sexually ambivalent yeah towards neither right well and you also see that with like jonathan and claire where they're introduced and they talk very early on about how they want to have a baby together and it's like but you're not having sex and it's just like well no but also like they're also in love with each other in a way as well and dependent on each other and emotionally sort of tied up with each other which is why when i definitely wanted to see more of what that meant for the two of them together though it would have been nice to have seen the two of them together before bobby shows up in new york Uh uh-huh you know yeah but again it is the movie does seem to exist more as like bobby's story and maybe part of that is well when you cast colin farrell he's sort of your lead especially at that point in the 2000s uh but because bobby is kind of for lack of a better term like a magical bisexual in this a little bit um you <laughs> magical need, asexual bisexual right right you need to sort of have the grounding of jonathan claire i feel like i'm nitpicking this fil- this film a lot in a way that makes it sound like i don't like it but i again it really ends up oh same and i think like i'd be so much more interested if, like in 2004 we weren't having conversations about asexuality like no. it was enough we're to not have in 2021 conversation really. about yeah. a thruple right a bisexual thruple you know right. of and like i don't think i mean michael mayer i think does not a horrible job with this movie but no. i think if you had someone with a little bit more refinement of like sexual ideas yeah to like develop some of this and like actually make it feel like more of a conversation than just like this interesting dynamic to watch for 90 minutes. Right. I think it could have a lot of that depth. It's interesting. You mentioned Michael Mayer and he's such, he's so much more of a notable theater director than he is a film director. Although he's directed, uh, three films, right? He directed this, he directed Flicka, the, uh, Alison Lohman horse girl movie and then couldn't be Flicka. <laughs> and then the seagull, which uh, was only a couple years ago, which I don't think either one of us thought was that good. Um, but I particularly uh, class of 2018 uh, member the seagull. But I remember quite liking Elizabeth Moss as Masha in the seagull. But that that to me seemed much more like, oh, yes, this is a theater director directing this. And I didn't quite get that. And again, maybe it's because the roots of the seagull are in theater and home at the end of the world. There's not. But I surprised myself looking up, looking through Michael Mayer's uh, career stuff and how much of a, like, acclaimed theater director he is, where he directed, Mm -hmm. um, I think the... Early on, I remember hearing a lot about that 1999 You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown production. It was a big uh-huh. sort of launching pad for Kristen Chenoweth, among other things. Um, his, Roger Bart, I believe. What, that was. I think that's him. right. I think that's right. Then he had that too. This movie came right after Thoroughly Modern Millie, which he didn't win the Tony for, but like that was a huge hit. One that wins launched, the Tony um, for Sutton, Sutton Foster. Foster. Um, amazing. Like, God, I would have died to have been able to see Sutton Foster uh, perform that role. This is the other thing is I'm looking through his I- IBDB, a internet Broadway database. And like his 1999, the lion in winter, which was like stalker Channing and Lawrence Fishburne would have died to see that his 
2000 Uncle Vanya was Derek Jacobi and Laura Linney and Roger Rees. Like, again, would have died to see that. He did a 2004 production of Night Mother with Brenda Blethyn and Edie Falco. Same. That played, like, 15 performances. It bombed so hard. Right, right. Um, But would have loved to have been able to just, like, have witnessed that. Then, yeah, you mentioned 30 Modern Millie is his big musical triumph in 2002. And then, obviously, the big one for him is he directs Spring Awakening. Uh, in 2006, and that is that's obviously like that's a sensation. He's also he Tony wins the nominated Tony. for um, a production of A View from the Bridge with Allison Janney, Anthony LaPaglia, and Brittany Murphy. Yes, yeah. Talk about some shit you'd want to see. <laughs> but like, he's he directed American Idiot on Broadway. He directed um, Everyday Rapture, the Sherry and Renee Scott uh, one woman show. Absolutely, fuck yeah. Um, the the Broadway, the final, like, uh, finally Hedwig on Broadway, uh, Hedwig production, he directed that. He directed the Go-Go's musical Head Over Heels, which is rad as fuck. It's so good. Um, I loved it. And then most recently, he directed the Burn This uh, revival with Adam Driver and Carrie Russell and Brandon Uranowitz. That is not perfect, but I was very, very happy to have seen it. And it was... uh really, really well acted, especially by Adam Driver and Brandon Uranowitz. And um so yeah, he's an he's an incredibly like accomplished theater director. And he's one of those names that like was slightly familiar to me. I was sort of talking to some of my Broadway friends earlier and I was just like, tell me what what's what's Michael Mayer's whole deal? Because like I get the like the Susan Stromans and the Evo Van Hovas and the um Alex Timberses and like those people. I sort of like get what they're, you know, reputation is or sort of like what their critical assessment is and michael mayer is a name i hear a lot evo van hova decides to make a movie (laughs) (laughs) evo van hova's uh, adaptation of uh, michael cunningham's uh the snow queen or whatever that book was um anyway yes uh but yeah i think the direction of this movie doesn't seem very stagey it's not spectacular, but I don't think it's bad either. No, I definitely think like you can kind of feel it that these relationships feel pretty developed if like yeah, the film isn't all that interesting to look at. Like it feels like the space and the energy and the thought was given to the actors and the performances. Right. Um, he seems to do like even he seems if to it's work not perfect. He seems to work with a lot of great actors. Oh, that's the other thing is I totally forgot to mention. I can't believe it took me this long to mention it. He directed the Smash pilot. Ah, uh, yes. Which is like a, you talk about cultural contributions. Like <laughs> will remain in the culture forever. And thank you very much for that. And for as much I will tell you, for as much as Smash, whatever Smash became, that pilot was unlike anything else that was on television. Good and bad. Like it was it it was a moment and the way that episode crescendos to let me be your star at the end is culture like not to like steal uh terminology from uh, less resources, but like post, that was uh, culture. super bowl television that the the moment where it pans down the panel because also the second best thing to the smash pilot was the trailer for smash that played <laughs> the year up to that where it's like it's uh that's the one that ends with and introducing Catherine mcphee um but 
when they're they essentially end the trailer with like most of let me be your star and it's that moment where it pans down the um it feels like the american idol judging panel where it's just like angelica houston um uh deborah messing christian borel and it's it's just like boom 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 and in the trailer it's just like and it's their obviously their names show up on the screen and it's just it is it was at that moment the height of culture and i will not take that away from him it's a wonderful wonderful screen credit to have and good for him thank you for your service michael mayer yes exactly uh do we want to talk about the colin farrell of it all I would love to talk about the Colin Farrell of it all. Okay, I I was thinking about this. I want to take us back to one of our very first episodes. I believe our third episode. I are we going to ask the dust? Are we going to uh, are we going to query uh, the dust? Is that what's going to happen? Not to call our longtime listeners the dust, <laughs> but I'm going to ask the dust uh-huh. to remind us. Because I remember us placing a bet, I believe it was a cash bet, Uh in that episode that we said it was either five years or ten years, I'm pretty sure it was five, that Colin Farrell would have an Oscar. An Oscar or an Oscar nomination? I believe we said an Oscar. Again, the dust can tell us. (laughs) So so you're saying we have two years years and change. We we have two more Oscars to go, right? For him to make good on that? Okay. Because that, God, was three years ago. Motherfuck. Oh, my God. The pandemic was just a glint in our eye. Um, Yeah. So, yeah. There's two more Oscar years to go for this to happen for Colin Farrell. I'm not sure if there's anything on the horizon for him at the moment that will be a contender for this year. So, really, there's one year to go. We have one Oscars. I will, I will challenge you on that because even though I do believe I said no and you said yes. So, I, I I'm the eternal optimist like to win the thing. bets that they make. Yeah. Um, I am not. <laughs> I'm the opposite. Yes. And, but I am also, uh, the one who, uh, uh, likes to follow a script, um, in terms of the plans that I make. Um, yes. the thing I'm going to say, that I'm very curious about could have a lot of potential. He is in the next Coconata movie. Did you like the movie Columbus? I liked it. I don't think I liked it as much as the people who loved it. And I sort of wish Same. I had I had loved it as much as some people did. But I thought it was good. I liked, of course, the performances. That was... Uh, um, we love John Cho. John Cho and Haley Lou. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, the thing... So, yeah, he's doing the next Koganada movie with Jodie Turner. It's called After Yang. Right. The thing, he's also doing a new Neil Berger movie. Neil Berger, who directed uh, The Illusionist and um, that Rachel McAdams movie where she plays a uh, Gulf War soldier that I had high hopes for her for that, and that Lucky didn't happen. Ones. But both of them are sci fi movies, and sci fi is a tough road to hoe for especially acting nominations at the Oscars. And yet. Because it is a sci-fi movie from the director of Columbus. Sure. Yes. I just wonder. I think that could be a thing. And, like, Columbus had very small distribution. Right. After Yang is an A24 movie. My mind goes to something like Moon with something like that, though. Like, auteur sci-fi, that kind of a thing. And it's just like... Colin Farrell could not have gotten better reviews for that. Or not Colin Farrell. Sam Rockwell could not have gotten better reviews for Moon. And, like, it's still... 
I get I get what you're saying though that there is potential in that for sure. I really thought you were going to say uh uh Oswald Cobblepot in the in the Batman, but uh apparently unrecognizable Batman villain. Unrecognizable. I love it. First of all, whenever people call things unrecognizable anymore, I'm like, "Have you seen a photo of that person before?" Yeah. It, it, Colin Farrell wait, is fully unrecognizable. Absolutely, un- like it, it. Yes, it fits the bill. Utterly unrecognizable. He he's also uh, in pre-production for an In Bruges reunion with him and Brendan Gleeson and Martin McDonough, which is interesting because In Bruges is the closest he's ever come to an Oscar nomination. He wins the Golden mm-hmm. Globe for that in 2008. He's so incredibly good in that. I know we're in a weird place with Martin McDonough pl- post Three Billboards, but it's going to be on Oscar rate uh the Oscar radar because of the success of three billboards. So maybe if that arrives in time for me to make good on our bet. If not, how tragic would it be if he wins an Oscar the year after the time limit runs out? I'll still count it because I'm greedy that way. You won't you'll still count it after you've paid me. What's that? You'll still count it after you paid me. What did I bet you? God, I'm going to have to pay you money. I think it's like 50 bucks. Oh my God. Choke on it. Choke on the that The dust will bucks. tell us. The dust, we need to know. Colin Farrell How will know that I had faith in him and that you were greedy. That is what Colin Farrell I always have faith in Colin Farrell. Listen, he's been on my ballot several times. Gonna, Don't blame me. Going to have to ask the dust blame about this system. one. Um... And then he also needs to tell us. Okay, what is the time frame? Is it a nomination or a win? How much money was it? And who bet what? He's also going to be, and I don't think this is going to be his Oscar play either. But he's going to be in the Ron Howard um, uh, soccer team. Soccer team caught in the uh, cave uh, collapse Thailand movie. No, that he's making. It's going to be Colin and Vigo, and I think one of the two of them is just like essentially like back at headquarters fretting maybe and like one of them is like in charge of like the, the rescue team um i think don't quote me on that but uh it's him and it's vigo be my favorite movie of 2024 i'm sure it's him and vigo I and 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 joel edgerton care. all trying to rescue this uh this the soccer team in thailand uh anyway so that's what colin farrell has upcoming yeah. But at this point in his career, this was like the first time that he's, you know, well, it, I mean, it's this year. It's also Alexander this year, which we've done an episode on. We have. Um, that it was like, they've tried to make him a movie star. Those movies didn't really make money except for Minority Report, which is not his movie. But he's so crucial to what makes that movie great, I think. Like, I think his I agree. counterpart to Tom Cruise works as well, if not better, than almost any other, like, Tom Cruise counterpart in a film like that that I can think of. He's so good. So it starts, basically, he'd done other things, but, like, the big debut was Joel Schumacher's Tigerland. 100%. Which didn't really uh, get much of a release, but it got a lot of critical favor. All the reviews were like, we have a new new leading man now. Because he's so, again, sometimes it just does come down to, he's just so handsome. Like, he's so handsome and also so good (laughs) in that. And it's just like, how can we fuck this up? Like, we can't, you can't fuck it up when, when an actor is 
great and also that good looking, you're just like, that's money in the bank. And immediately starts getting cast opposite, um, who was it in Hearts War? Bruce Willis? Of course it's Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis. Uh, in Gregory Hoblet's Hearts War. He's in, um, he plays Jesse James in American Outlaws, which I always confuse with the Newton Boys, which, but this one is more, um, the Newton Boys was Linkletter, and this feels more like MTV, where it's like Scott Kahn and Ollie Larder post uh, Varsity Blues. Mm-hmm. Um, our good friend Gabriel Macht uh, is in that. Uh, other Suits from Suits. Uh, He's and other Suits Gregory from Suits? I thought Gabriel Macht was Suits from Suits. No, 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 no. Suits from Suits is the guy whose name I can never remember, who got the Golden Globe nomination that one year. That's Suits from Suits. Gabriel Macht is other Suits from Suits. Suits from Suits, okay. that character was the one who uh, marries Meghan Markle in the show and then leaves. Um, that's Suits. This is mocked as other Suits. Anyway. I will never discover this for myself. <laughs> I only know it from promos. Don't worry. Um, Gregory Smith from My Beloved Everwood is also uh, in American Outlaws, but we don't really need to linger on that. Um, you mentioned Minority Report. I think Phone Booth is very fun. That's another Schumacher movie. He's so good in Phone Booth. Phone Booth is like a 15-minute movie. It's so short, but it's like <laughs> so punchy. And it's just like one location. He's just like he's in stuck in a phone booth being terrorized by off-screen Kiefer Sutherland. And it, the movie kind of looks like dog shit, but it is yes, so it does. fun. It's, bad, it's one of those bad digital videos. Yeah. yeah, no, it's very fun. Like you will not regret uh, pulling up uh, Phone Booth. The Recruit is the one with uh, Al Pacino, right? Yes. And The Recruit, I don't think, did much. Like, I think there was a lot of expectation on The Recruit because it's like Feral. Like, it's Pacino and Feral, like the old star, Isn't the new like star. like an April movie, though? So it's yes. like, it's only going to make so much movie, right. money in April. And then also in 2003, well, he's in Veronica Guerin, <laughs> which, like, nobody remembers. Uh, nobody remembers him being in it. I, of course, remember Kate Blanchett as the titular Veronica Guerin, of course. He's in so many movies in 2003 because he's also in SWAT. But Daredevil, I think, is the big one where he's the big, he's the cool villain opposite Ben Affleck in Daredevil. But I think what I feel like the lasting legacy of Colin Farrell's performance in Bullseye is, is when he's in that sex tape uh, that gets leaked maybe a year later. He still Um, has... No, I looked it up because it's even after this movie in Alexander that it was leaked. It was like 06. Okay. Um, He's got the bullseye shaved head. Like, that's how I will always place that sex tape in time, is uh, he's he's still (laughs) got... It is part of the... the, Like, basically belongs as a special feature on a Daredevil Colin Farrell's sex tape is part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe because uh, Daredevil is a Marvel superhero. Yes, absolutely. Um... Yeah, you're right, because around it's it's not till 2004, because then there were the, there was all the rumors he was out, he was carousing, he and Britney Spears showed up on the, the red mm-hmm. carpet together somehow, everybody assumed that they had sex, I also do, because if you have Colin Farrell on a date, like, you better go for that. Um, He'd also, um, in, I believe, 05, went to rehab. Right. Um. Because the sex tape came out after that, too, when he was trying to rehabilitate his image a little bit. So, But the other thing about A Home at the End of the World is there were rumors as this film was in production that there would be a full frontal nudity scene for Colin Farrell. And it got taken out. I think 
for good reasons for the film. I don't think this is a film that needs the Bobby character to have a full frontal nudity scene. I don't think it serves anything. It would anything. make no sense. It would make no sense. But the rumors at the time before the movie came out uh, were that the scene was taken out because Colin Farrell's penis was so big that it was distracting. And that okay now i believe that it's real because at first i was like that just sounds like a rumor thing because it doesn't make sense for the plot but um we know we know um but that was the rumor at the time as to as to the why it got taken out and then also in 2004 he makes alexander which we talked about which has a oliver stone director's cut that is like more nudity more colin farrell you can see his balls from behind and like so there's like <laughs> That's how we know. That's how we know. That's how you know. That's how you know. But everybody wants to live a happily ever after. People in 2004 were very, very focused on Colin Farrell nudity. And then it got paid off with the the sex tape um, afterwards. And so, right. So then after his, uh, his rehab, his sort of like, like he makes the new world with Malik. Um, Ask the Dust, as we have talked about. Miami Vice with Michael Mann. So he's working with, like, the big directors. Cassandra's Dream with Woody Allen. And then, but I think it's in Bruges that feels like the comeback movie, even though he never really went away. But Mm -hmm. in Bruges feels like, oh, this is Colin Farrell. He's got his shit together. He's so good. And he's also, he breaks your heart in that film. In a role that, in a film that you wouldn't think would have the capacity to break your heart. But... He's just so incredibly good in that movie. I don't know how you feel about him, Bruce, but like I absolutely love it. You said it all beautifully. The thing about him feeling like the star in that movie is like, I mean, we didn't know who Martin McDonough was unless you paid attention to theater. Right. But like, even so, he was still mostly untested in the film world. I think he was he an Oscar nominee or an Oscar winner for short. I believe winner. Um, but let me look that up. Yes, he was an Oscar winner for two, uh, the, the 2005 movies, best uh, live action short film for Six Shooter, which was, uh, uh, Brendan Gleeson, right? Yes. I always confuse that with, what was the Clive Owen car commercial that was a short film? Was that Guy Ritchie? Do you know what I'm talking about? What's that? All Guy Ritchie movies are car commercials. Yes, yes. But there was one that was just like, it was like Clive Owen, and he's in a car, and I'm pretty sure it was like- Clive Owen in a car. Yeah, um, whatever. That's that's taking us too far afield. But yes, he won- Martin McDonough was an Oscar winner by that point, before In Bruges. But it also feels like Colin Farrell is the star, like he's finally the star in In Bruges, which was a smaller movie. Yep. After the movies after Alexander, because like New World is the stars Terrence Malick, right? Exactly, um, and like sunsets are the star of that movie. That movie's incredible. Um, uh, the Natural World is yeah. the star of the New World. Um, Ask the Dusk is not real, right? Even though we've done a whole episode on it, no one saw it. Um, Miami Vice, Michael Mann, and like 
at that point, Jamie Foxx was the Oscar winner, so it's like Jamie Foxx. Even right. If, well, it's like, a lot of like we'll we'll give Colin Farrell a lead role, but he's got to have like a buddy. Where it's like it's him and Jamie Foxx right. in uh, in Miami Vice. Obviously, Woody Allen's casting doesn't really like pertain much to. Probably less people have seen Cassandra's Dream than saw Ask the Dust. Oh, right. But it's him and Ewan McGregor. That's also like the the two lead kind of a thing. And then isn't Sally Hawkins in that one? Uh, it's possible. Let's see. Um, the one I never saw. No, this it's one. Haley Atwell. No, it's Haley Atwell and Sally ah. Hawkins. It's both of them. Uh, and then also the the supporting actress I really love in that is Claire Higgins. But um, I don't remember a ton about the plot of Cassandra's Dream. That was sort of like that was when like Woody Allen's making movies in England now, and it's like Match Point, and then Scoop, and then it's just like and Cassandra's Dream sort of like also happens, and uh, but it didn't get a ton of attention. And then he sort of after In Bruges, it's funny because he wins the Golden Globe. You would think like top of the world, Colin Farrell, he's back, and then he takes a lot of supporting roles where it's like he's one of the three Heath Ledger replacements in the Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus. Um, or it's like supporting roles and then like really small stuff like Ondine, the, uh, the mermaid movie, the mm-hmm. Neil Jordan mermaid that movie. That is a Jeremy Davies movie? Who's the director on that? Neil Jordan. Terrence Davies. Neil Jordan. It's Neil Jordan. Okay. Yeah. God, if only Jeremy Davies would start directing movies, I would love it. Not Jeremy Davies. I meant Terrence Davies. You know what I mean. <laughs> uh, but he's like, he's this, he's like the forgotten supporting performer in Crazy Heart. He's, uh... He's, um, you know, like one of he's like a one of the bosses and horrible bosses, like this kind of a thing. And I feel like I've said it before, but like Colin Farrell is a really great character actor who's usually a lead, right? Right. But I <laughs> even think he's... when he's, I mean, like he had that period where it was a lot of small roles. Now he's pretty much always leads, but he's still, yeah, he's coming to his own, making like character choices playing character roles or right. like and the, and and when he is a lead it's like it's smaller stuff where he's like he's the villain in fright night um and then like okay <laughs> i want to talk about winter's tale for a second because that is a a bad I movie that burned very brightly for a very short period of time but i was very glad that i saw it in a theater because it was it's one of those bad movies that really does need to be experienced it is quite something it is just I'll catch up to it soon. Um, twenty fifteen, he makes the lobster. He's also a supporting role in Saving Mr. Banks because, like, again, that's another one of those. Like, that's one of the ones that people uh, hated him for. I, that's one that I see a lot of people when really? that movie gets mentioned. They're like, "But Colin Farrell is so terrible in it." I mean, I maybe, but like, what are what do we really need out of Colin Farrell in Saving Mr. Banks? Honestly, like. He's not, what do we really need out of saving? He's not game? really the reason why that movie's bad. Like, <laughs> um, he's also in the the Miss Julie uh, movie with uh, the Leave Ullman directed uh, Miss Julie with him and Jessica Chastain that I think is really terrible. But like, I know some people who uh, who enjoyed it better than I did. It's very a lot. It's very over the top in all the performances, him included. But he's in the forgotten season of True Detective. He's really good in that. Is the thing he's it's the forgotten season of True Detective. I believe it. I think Vince Vaughn is the problem in that season, but I think he and also Rachel McAdams are both really really good in that season. Uh, the Lobster, though, that's the big sort of like once again Colin Farrell in a lead role in a really interesting movie. Um, 
this is a this is a, a milieu like the Yorgos Lanthimos milieu. I think he should like just keep making Yorgos Lanthimos movies forever. I know Killing uh-huh. of a Sacred Deer is divisive, but it's my favorite Colin Farrell performance. He's so weird in that, but I really love what he's doing. He's so fucking funny. He's so strange. And never ask for a laugh. Yeah. Uh, it's it's such an odd movie, but I really really like. I, I it. adore that movie. Yeah. Um, that was our first TIFF uh, when we both we were both there, right? Uh, I remember enthusiasm. Uh, yes, but we didn't see that together, right? Uh, guys, Joe and I's first movie together. No one would guess this in a million years. Oh, I know. Michael Hanukkah's happy end. Yes, happy end. <laughs> what an it inauspicious, so inauspicious. Um, and of course, we're the two people laughing through this giant theater. Just our cacophonous echoes of laughs at the final shot of that movie because we are uh not well balanced people (laughs) you really really liked that movie i thought that movie was i i think that movie got a unfair shake yeah it's good karaoke scene in that film um but again recently it's been a lot of supporting role in the beguiled like featured supporting role but supporting role um he's really really great in roman j israel esquire but that's not his movie um love that movie I really enjoy him in Widows. We've talked, obviously, about Widows before. Um, obviously, his performance as Artemis Fowl Sr. in Artemis Fowl is the great unlauded performance of 2020. <laughs> like, we've talked about this. We know this. This is obvious. This is uh, this is elementary. Um, I really like Colin Farrell. I root for Colin Love Farrell. And, One of the finest working actors. And again, if he's listening, which I'm sure he is, like, I believed in you with that Ask the Dust bet. And I really, really want it to pay off for you. So, uh, good luck. Good luck, we're all counting on you. Uh, Not to pull a Leslie Nielsen, but yes. To pull it towards the Oscar conversation. Let's. There is kind of a... We haven't really talked about Michael Cunningham, which, like, this movie came two years after the hours. Like, that's a big reason why this movie was held in Oscar conversations before people saw it. You don't know what good it did my heart to see a trailer that begins with from the writer of the hours. I'm like, fuck yeah, we're selling this on the hours. You're goddamn right. You know what was successful? The fucking hours. All right. Always the hours. Um, I too was radicalized by the hours. Um, But I think there's another thing, and we've never really talked about this um, before, but like just the, it is straight actors playing somewhere along the uh, queer alphabet. Right. 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 Yes. So, Joe. Yes. I have a game for you. Yes. This game I have uh, lovingly titled Jack Twist, Jack Supporting Actor. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. I hate you. <laughs> All right. So this, uh, once again, we're playing Jack Twist, Jack Supporting Actor. Um, here's how this is going to go. Like our beloved Alter Egos game, we're going to start with character names. Okay. I'm going to give you the character name of the nominated performance as a first clue. Okay. If you struggle, you'll get the acting category as okay. a second clue. Get okay. that, Jack Twist? Jack Supporting Actor. You're Jack Nasty uh, for this. If you still struggle, I will, I will give you the nomination year. So it's going to be character, category, year. Okay. All of these characters are going to fall somewhere on the LGBTQ map, but are played by cisgendered heterosexual performers. All of... Uh, I've chosen five from each acting category. Eliminated characters only credited with a first name. Sorry, Bruce Davison's David from Long Time <laughs> Companion. Shit, I was ready to throw that out there as a guess. Okay. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, wouldn't you believe? Um, and I've uh, removed a lot of the uh, Frida Kahlo's, the Virginia Woolf's. Right, um, right, right. You'll find a few of them in there. Um, and I've tried to make them go from easy to hard for okay. you. Okay, all right, hit me. Are you ready to play Jack Twist, Jack's supporting actor? Jack Nasty, yes. Yes, I am. Uh, okay, so your first character of... Queer per a uh, queer character played by a cishet performer is Anne, Queen of Britain. Anne, Queen of Britain, and these are all in supporting. Uh, no, you do not oh. know what category they are in. Well, then, if this... you really want to like keep track and dupe the system before getting your, I won't. your clues, I won't. there is only five from each category. I would that would require me to reach for a pen. I'm not doing that. Um, no, no. This is Olivia Coleman in uh, The Favorite. It is Olivia Coleman, uh, winner for lead actress in 2018. That's right. Uh, your second is Therese Bellavet. <laughs> God bless that uh, that name flung out of space. Uh, Rooney Mara in Carol. Nominated for Best Supporting Actress in 2015. Fraudulently your so. Your next one. Lily Elba. This is Eddie Redmayne in The Danish Girl. Indeed. Nominated for lead actor also in 2015. Yes. Your next character name, Celie Harris-Johnson. Oh, Miss Seely. That is Whoopi Goldberg in The Color Purple. The um, uh, legendary Whoopi Goldberg, nominated in Lead Actress 1985. Uh, your next character name is Jack Hawk. Hawk? Like H-A-W-K? Jack Hawk is spelled H-O-C-K. Okay. Jack Hawk. Is that... No. Matthew McConaughey is straight in Dallas Buyers Club. That's the whole gag of that. Um, I'm going to need a hint. Uh, the name, uh, spelling out the name was somewhat of a hint, if you remember one of the lines from the movie. This is a supporting actor nominee. Jack Hawk, supporting actor. Hawk is a clue, spelling it out. H-O-C-K. Hawk. I'm going to need the year. 2018. 2018. Supporting actor. Is that uh, Mahershala in Green Book? No, that is Don Shirley that he plays in Green Book. Right, of course, of course. Jack Hawk, H-O-C-K. Oh, God, it's Richard E. Grant. It's Richard E. Grant. It is Richard Entertainment Grant. (laughs) I'm so, I feel so ashamed. I love that performance so much. Jack Hawk, big cock, he says. Yes. All right, your next character name is Barbara Covet. Oh, Barbara. Um, uh, What does Kate Blanchett call her? A a miserable little virgin? Something like that when she's yelling at her? (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, This is uh, my beloved Judy Dench in Notes on a Scandal. You think this is a love affair? <laughs> yes, that is Judy Dench in Notes on a Scandal. Nominated. You think you're Virginia friggin' wolf? That's so good. <laughs> Camp Excellence, 90 minutes long, Notes on a Scandal. Nominated for Judy Dench and lead actress, uh, yes. 2006. All right, next character, Richard Brown. Oh, Richard. 
So sad. Um, this is Ed Harris in uh, the greatest film of all time, The Hours. Uh, nominated for Sporting Actor in 2002. Uh, some of my arrangements, I could have thought more about how I thought you would get them versus me because I <laughs> clearly should have put Richard right from the top. Uh, next character, Salvador Mayo. Mayo? Yes. M-A-Y-O or M-A-L-L-O? M-A-L-L-O, Salvador Mayo. Okay. This isn't... Javier Bardem in Before Night Falls. That's not his character's name. No, that is Reynaldo Arenas that he plays. Exactly. Salvador Mayo. Is this Raul Julia in Kiss of the Spider Woman? He was not nominated, and he was heterosexual in that movie. I have never seen Kiss of the Spider. Right, it's William Hurt who is uh, right. Sorry. This is where I expose myself as having never seen Kiss of the Spider Woman. Kiss of the Spider Woman? I do not like. All right. uh, I'm going to need a hint. Uh, Lead actor. I would also say as a little bonus hint for you, uh, you started off by guessing... Re- a real person with Javier Bardem's Before Night Falls performance. Uh, this is a fictional character. Okay. You really put a lot of English on fictional there. Um, uh, I mean, it's fiction, <laughs> but it's, 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 uh, it's not. It's thinly veiled fiction. Okay. Um, lead actor. Lead actor. Playing gay, Salvador Mayo, the year. 2019. 2019. Okay, so we got, uh, it's not that Pope, and it's not uh, DeCap. Yes, that gay Pope. (laughs) And it's not Adam Driver in Marriage Story, and it's not the Joker, so it's the fifth one that I can't remember. It's the deserving God winner that year. Damn we it. We were so happy. Uh, yeah, we all love uh, loved uh, Joaquin Phoenix and Joker. Um, no, this is the deserving winner. Oh, this is the deserving win. I see. Um, fuck. I'm going to be so it's mad at myself. It's a performance so good at the gay shit that you would never believe that this was a straight performer. I'm going to give it to you. It's Antonio Banderas, Pain and <gasps> Glory. Wow, I'm so dumb. I'm so dumb. I loved that performance. Should have won. Yes, should have won. Absolutely. Um, okay, your next character, Abigail Mosham. Abigail Mosham. Good old Abby. Uh, queering it up in the old queer film, Abigail. Um, hint? Uh, supporting actress. Abigail Masha. Perhaps in a movie that's already come up in this quiz. Oh. Okay. A movie from 2018. <gasps> is it, um, is that, uh, Rachel Weisz's character in The Favorite? No, it is Emma Stone's character. Ah, it's Emma Stone's character in the favorite. Right, Rachel Weisz was uh, the countess Sarah. of something or other. Right, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, your next character is Libby Holden. God bless it. I loved, loved this performance. I think she should have won. I should have put this earlier. 
Sorry. No, you, how were you to know? Um, how are you to know that I am a, uh, a, uh, a moth to a flame when it comes to Mike Nichols directing, uh, uh many, many great actors. It's, uh, Kathy Bates in Primary Colors. I definitely nominated uh, for supporting actress in 1998. I wanted Probably her to win so bad. Second place. Oh, yeah. She had won the SAG or something like that. Yeah. Uh, your next character is Sabrina Bree Osborne. Oh, this is um, Felicity Huffman in Transamerica. Nominated for lead actress in 2005. Your next character is Dolly Pelliker. Dolly Pelliker. Dolly Pelliker. A supporting actress nominee. Thank you for that hint. Um, supporting actress. Her name's Dolly. She likes to have fun. She goes out on the town. Not sure she does either of those things. It's from okay. 1983. <laughs> Is this Sharon Silkwood? It is Sharon Silkwood. I would go out on the town with Sharon Silkwood, I'll tell you that much. I know she's working class, but you know what? She can probably kick up her heels. <laughs> if Sharon won that Oscar, a lot of problems would have been solved. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> you think that was, that was Glenn? Glenn would have taken it otherwise? I think you're probably right. No, 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 no. You give Cher the Silkwood Oscar. You give Holly Hunter the broadcast oh this is this is your problem is glenn close the dangerous liaisons one that doesn't have to change anything but then angela bassett gets the oscar for what's love i get it i'll i'll roads lead to giving angela bassett the oscar for what's love got to do indeed indeed i get it um all right your next character name is andrew andy beckett this is tom hanks in philadelphia uh lead actor winner in 1993 your next character is roberta muldoon Oh, oh, I know this. Fuck, I know this. Well, obviously, this was the uh, the wife and then later widow of um, the Muldoon from Jurassic Park who gets eaten by uh, raptors. Mm-hmm. True. Those clever girls. No, Very um, true. Uh, she, Supporting she was she was his clever girl. That's what he called his wife uh, before uh, before all the bad things happened. He said clever girl when they got married. <laughs> no, um, Supporting actor. Roberta... Supporting actor? Yes. Roberta Muldoon. Is this Jay Davidson in The Crying Game? No. Uh, Jay Davidson's character Dill. name is Dill. Dill. Yes. Also, this is all uh, cisgendered heterosexuals, and Jay right. Davidson was right. playing a trans character, but he is gay. Right. Um, 1982. 82. Oh, oh, this is probably John Lithgow in The World According to Garp. Indeed, it is John Lithgow in The World According to Garp. Uh, your next one is a free space because I <laughs> forgot that I put Reynaldo Arenas in this quiz. <laughs> I would have got um, it anyway, even if you hadn't uh, have, uh, given that. Uh, this is uh, Javier Bardem in Before Night Falls. All right, we're coming in on the closing stretch of the five most difficult. So okay. here we go. Let's see if All you right. can uh, get these. Your All character right. name is Simon Bishop. Oh. Shoot, Simon this is familiar Bishop. to me. Simon Bishop. Should be. Shut up. Now you're making me feel bad for not knowing it. Um, Simon. This is a performance Bishop. that did not need to be nominated. 
I get All it, right. but we don't need this nomination. Category? Supporting actor. Simon Bishop. Oh, is this Greg Kinnear in As Good As It Gets? Indeed, it is Greg Kinnear in As Good As It I Gets. I thought he was quite good in that. I haven't I seen that movie fine. in a long time, but I I thought he was. And also, this is the thing. This was Greg Kinnear. It was like, congratulations, Greg Kinnear. You have turned yourself into a film actor. Like, that was, I think that's a lot of what <laughs> went into. For two days. <laughs> well, but no, he had a little bit of a moment. He's, he's, and he's good still... later in other stuff. Like, he's good in autofocus, but like. Yeah, nominate him for autofocus instead. Um, and if you're going to nominate a supporting actor, like even though Cuba Gooding had already won, like Cuba Gooding Jr. Cuba Gooding Jr. is in there for two scenes. He's he's barely in that movie, though. I get it, but he's barely in that movie. Uh, your next character name is Hubert Page. You know who's really good and as good as it gets, and maybe should have gotten a nomination. Although she's also in the Shirley Knight. scenes. Shirley Knight's wonderful in that film, and I always loved. Jack Everybody Nicholson wants for that gear. Her. Yeah, it doesn't exist. It's such. She has two really great scenes with uh, with Helen Hunt in that film, and she's so wonderful. Anyway, sorry. What? Who did you say? Hubert Page. Oh, this is not. Uh, this is not ringing a bell. Category. Supporting actress. Hubert Page. Year. The supporting actress in yeah. 2011. Oh, this is uh, my beloved Janet McTeer in Albert Nobbs. Indeed it is. Uh, your next character name is George Falconer. Well, of course, my uh, my immediate association for falconer is that was the name of uh, george clooney's character in sisters before he got blowed up uh in a car bomb but that's neither here nor there um but it was devastating to seal award let me tell you what um george falconer category i'm gonna guess lead, lead actor. actor right okay year 2009 2009 Oh, is this Colin Firth and a single man? It is indeed Colin Firth and a single what man. What a distinguished ma- name. Like, of course. Yeah. That uh, is a name that you would expect dressed. to be modeling a crisp shirt with a tie and a suit, just like all Tom Ford uh, characters must. That's a name you expect to see, like, uh, doing whiskey commercials in Japan. One million percent true. Absolutely. Make it Suntory time with George Falconer. Yes. Um, your next character, this is the second to last one, Hal Fields. Hal Fields. I feel, I have a feeling like this is also a lead actor. It is not, it's a supporting actor. Supporting actor, Hal Fields, and Bruce Davison is not an option. Um, even though that sounds like a Bruce Davison kind of a character. Year? We have talked about this performance a bunch before. Hmm. Uh, the year is 2011. Oh, is this Christopher Plummer in Beginners? It is Christopher Plummer in Beginners. May Very he good. rest. Very good. All right, your last character name uh, for Jack Twist, Jack Supporting Actor. It is Nicole Allgood. Nicole Allgood. Which sounds like it might be like a drag character. But now I can't think of 
I mean, if you really want to, if you really want to be mean to this performance, wow. Okay. Okay. Um, but that sounds like a plausible drag name, right? Nicole Allgood. Um, uh, category lead actress, right? Nicole also probably second place. All right. Year. Um, I think I wrote the wrong year down in this. It's 2010. 2010. Nicole Allgood. This is Annette Benning and the kids are all right. Indeed, it is Nicole or it is uh, Nicole Allgood as Annette Benning as Nicole Allgood. And all right. the kids are all right. All right. I'm and happy that with how was I did. Jack Twist, Jack supporting That's actor. That's a really good quiz. Very good. Well done. Well done. The thing about like Oscar nominated uh performances are uh, where the character is queer and then it's a straight person performing them is like there is somewhat of a long history for it, but like it's gendered in a really interesting way if you actually look at the cases where it has been nominated. Yeah. Um in that like it's and like this probably speaks to like an ingrained homophobia thing in the culture that it's like it's a lot of men getting rewarded for it. Like I had a lot of options yes. to like filter out of this for the male categories and less for the female categories. And even well, for the female categories, it's a lot of famous people like Queen Anne right. and uh <clears throat> Virginia Woolf, Frida Kahlo. Right. Eileen Wernos would have been too uh too obvious, but yes. Exactly. Um, I think I I mean to to feel really sort of like to point out the cynicism and ugliness of it. I think for a while a straight actor playing gay was probably for an Oscar voter in the same bucket as a straight actor playing deaf or you mm-hmm. know uh paralyzed or something you know what I mean where it was just like it was a care a, a, a stepping out of themselves into a different character but it was like not and like not to say that these movies cast these characters as you know deficient or whatever but i think for if you want to be cynical about it you could easily say that like oscar voters looked at that as like oh what a degree of difficulty you had to play uh, you step so much outside of yourself right right exactly which is again it delves into this thing of you know oh it's such a brave performance a thing that i think people still imagine that is a compliment that gets given to straight players who play gay, but I'm not sure if that's what we say about those performances anymore. But uh, we certainly did for quite a while. And yeah. And honestly, here's one thing I do think about this movie because probably the most traction it got and like the buzz that it got for it um, ahead of just like a general thing, but like the performance that was probably most talked about was Dallas Roberts. Yes. And, Dallas Roberts is straight. Right. But I think if he was a known actor before this, he could have probably gotten more room in the season, even though the movie wasn't received all that well. The performance yeah. is so good. And like he got a Gotham nomination for it, right? Good I think for him. I could I can imagine him showing up in more places if people knew who he was, that he was straight playing a gay character. Two things about that. A um, a lot of the times when we, as uh, you know, especially gay men, sort of sit on the jury of uh, straight actors playing gay men, especially, um, and we sort of have our little rubric of what we judge them on. A lot of the times, it's uh, 
awkwardness with physical intimacy that that is a major uh category for us dallas roberts dives right the fuck into making out with that guy in that scene uh in the uh in the because of the night uh montage mm-hmm. good for well, him we should talk about the needle drops before we there there there's a recognizability Ugh. to the uh aggressive uh make out move in that scene that i uh <laughs> the lips lock exactly as the like first clang of because it's well timed it's it's well timed uh every sure. single song cue in this movie is like that and it drives me crazy uh, let me tell you if i never hear me and julio by the schoolyard in another fucking <laughs> i loved movie, it i'm sorry i will be so happy i'm so basic like, but i loved it um i love that so- i love i'm a like Simon and Garfunkel, up, slut. Simon. I am. Um, I will not shut up. I will. I not will you. I said continue. shut up, Paul Simon. <laughs> there uh, are other Paul Simon songs. There are other Paul Simon songs. I get it. Um, there's a commercial out there now with Homeward Bound in uh, in it, and it makes me uh, emotional every oh, time. I hate that too. Anyway, um, the other thing about Dallas Roberts at this port- point in time is this was the era of if you were a uh sort of skinny white unknown actor to me playing a gay role well i absolutely thought that the that you were uh you were gay as well and it it would it shook me to find out that it wasn't <laughs> Dallas Roberts but also i put in this bucket Justin Kirk from Angels in America who i was bereft to find out was not gay in real life because i really really bought it uh his prior walter in Angels in America so uh, that is what I will say. Oh boy! Oh boy! I was not wrong. <laughs> okay, let's talk a little bit more around like the movie not doing well. I mean, I'm kind of, I'm a little surprised, and it kind of sucks because this movie is like off of the map. Um, it's off the end of the world. Yeah. Um, in terms of like, it doesn't even fully feel possible for this movie to get much of a reassessment, but it's sitting at a 50% Rotten Tomatoes score. That which, seems like, very harsh. Very harsh. It does seem very harsh. But if like, you look at it, like a lot, like Roger Ebert really liked it. Uh, I was sort of going, like browsing through the Rotten Tomatoes um, uh, reviews and sorry, one second. Um, as I want to bring this up, but like Ebert really liked it, gave it like three out of four stars. Some of these, obviously, most of these reviews, because they're from 2004, you can't really click through and read them, unfortunately. But, like, David Anson at Newsweek liked it. Wesley Morris liked it. Um, uh, anybody else I want to shout out uh, as having liked it? Like, it, you, you sort of scroll through this and you kind of sample the little, like, top-line quotes and it's surprising. Oh, big surprise. Peter Travers liked it. Wow, amazing. Um, Peter Travers likes everything. That's that's why I was being sarcastic. Um, but also, uh, noted bitch Rex Reed liked it. So good for that. Um, <laughs> and like, not every, A.O. Scott did not care for it. Oban Gleiberman did not care for it. But like, I mean, um, you're also talking about a lot of heterosexual yeah. male critics, too, that it's like they were certainly not the audience for this movie and this movie that's like kind of trying to walk a really delicate line that like is just out of their purview like i hate to reduce it to such simplistic things but like i wonder if there would be a kinder audience for this movie on top of like conversations around things that this movie is about yeah um being a little bit uh, uh, being an environment to make a more interesting movie today but like 
it kind of sucks. I wish people could revisit this movie a little bit more and yeah. like it's a three dollar rental on uh, on Apple. Like go for it. This is why though I wanted I was I was bummed I couldn't seek out the Wesley Morris review because that is a perspective on that film that uh, I would have liked to have seen. I tried to Google it and it Love wasn't Wesley happening, Morris. and I did not have the patience for the Wayback Machine. But um, <laughs> our good friend, the Wayback Machine. Um, yeah. The movie only made a million dollars. Never yeah. played more than like sixty five screens. Yeah, though, like that was surprising to me because I remember it being maybe it was just programmed well here by like our indie theaters oh you got to see it in theater that's cool i had to wait for uh, i don't know if i saw it in a theater but like i know i remember it playing the theater yeah um and it's like it that's still just surprising to me this is warner independence second release ever right by only a few weeks by only a few weeks because right. like three weeks before this comes out they do before sunset right um as the first warner independence love warner release. independence starting off with the best movie they would ever release i know <laughs> like there was and you know i like a, i like a good bit of these uh the subsequent uh warner independent movies but like their first movie was before sunset the best movie they ever released the last movie was slumdog millionaire the most successful movie they ever released so like well they didn't release it they were supposed to oh, the company was going right. under and it went I to searchlight it went we to searchlight did. you're right yeah. yeah i forget what episode we did where we did the whole warner independent history um, but it is fascinating. Yeah. Um, what must that have been? That must have been when we did... Uh, at this point, I can't remember what we've done. <laughs> now I'm looking through their list of things, because we haven't done a home... At, or uh, uh, We Don't Live Here Anymore yet. Painted Veil. It must have been the Painted Veil. Painted Veil. Yeah. Our Naomi Watts miniseries last year. Ooh, we should hype uh, that we're... Uh, the, the May miniseries yeah. is coming up, guys. We're excited for this one. We, we've so. had this one in the pocket for a long time. Um... It is a subject that is near and dear to us. Should we say what it is, or will they not know? By we now? won't say because uh, uh, we we want to do the reveal. But uh, right. uh, in the next week, pay attention to our Twitter account had underscore Oscar underscore Buzz. We'll yeah. do a whole reveal. There's going to be a listener's choice. I think I think there's going to be uh, some competition in this listener's choice. Yeah, excited. For Hopefully, that. the listener's choice is like a nice surprise for you guys. Where I think. I think it's a lot of movies that you could get contingents of people really talking yeah. for them. No bots. Keep your bots away from our <laughs> polls. Um, yeah. You know what I think is interesting about Home at the End of the World? It got a National Board Review pl- Prize for special recognition for excellence in filmmaking, which is one of those NBR they were things. right to say it. Sure, but like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, that's such a like good for you kind of like a participation it means come trophy. To our dinner. Of course it does. But like, at least, like, make it like the you know C. Montgomery Burns Award for uh, Excellence in the f- uh, uh, Distinguished Achievement in the Field of Excellence, like something like that. Just give it uh, <laughs> a little bit more of a juge. Well, like you can uh, take a look at it and see that they're trying to get a lot of different distributors there, probably to buy a table at their dinner before sunsets. Also in this category. Wait. Um. They yeah. They gave special recognition for excellence in filmmaking. This must have been their precursor to when they did a top ten for indie films. They gave thirteen films excellence in filmmaking special recognitions. Holy shit. It is all the indies. Mm-hmm. Like, this is exactly what it was. This is before they got the idea to do a top 10 indies in addition to the regular top 10. Because it's, you're right, before Sunset, 
Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Enduring Love, Garden State, the aforementioned imaginary heroes with uh, 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 Boy Kissing. Sigourney Weaver. Um, Stage Beauty, which we should do at some point. I would love to do Stage Beauty at some point. Assassination of Richard Nixon, The Door in the Floor, we've done an episode on. Um, David Gordon Green's Undertow. The Woodsman, the one where Kevin Bacon plays a... Uh, a I guess a not. lot of people guessing the woodsman this month on our uh, teaser. <laughs> what was the clue that had them guessing the woodsman? I forget right now off the top of my head because That's I've so never funny. seen the woodsman. I feel like it was the puke, maybe. No, I forget what it was. Yeah, but a lot I've of people a movie that we I've never heard woodsman. of before called Facing Windows, which stars uh, uh, Giovanna Mezzogiorno, who I believe was. In Love in the Time of Cholera, but I could be wrong. Anyway. Cool. Also, this movie, Since Otar Left. Oh, yes, which I remember hearing about a little bit. I feel like that might have been a foreign language contender or something. But, yeah. Anyway, that was uh, that was before NBR decided or figured out that they could just come up with a whole other top ten list and nobody would care because it's the NBR. And, uh they can do what they want. <laughs> they see a lot of movies, guys. Listen, I love they it. They want like, you to know they saw everything. There are more than everything. 10 good movies every year. So if an awards, awards group wants to honor 40 of them, do it. Like, there's enough to go around. But then, when you don't show the... When the 21st movie doesn't show up, it's like, well, what the fuck? Right. What did we do wrong? Yeah, I get it. I get it. What else did this movie show up for? Uh, It was a GLAAD nominee for Outstanding Film in Wide Release. Wide Release is pretty funny to me when it played 65 theaters. Yes, that's true. Also nominated against Saved, Monster, Alexander, and the winner, Kinsey. Yeah. I mean, hold please. Bad Education won their uh, limited release movie category as it should and i'm going to look up the widest release for bad education because even with an nc-17 rating i'm willing to bet that it was in more theaters at some point it also you made so? five million dollars which is five times what yeah uh, a home at the end of the world made i still feel like bad education was probably a small release though like the spirit of that feels correct it played over 100 theaters at one point. Wow, okay, good for that work. Which um, is, uh, uh, obviously, Bad Education is the winner there. It's just, what I'm saying is that it is funny that they called A Home at the End of the World a wide release. Yeah. <laughs> um, going through my notes here as we sort of begin to wrap up, um, I wrote down Sissy Spacek Breaking Plates in the Aughts, a genre, because... Uh, exactly. She uh, she has a scene after her husband dies and everybody sort of comes in and she uh, she drops a plate and then she just smashes a couple more on the floor in her grief. And that is, of course, an extension of the In the Bedroom cinematic universe where uh, that's probably why her uh, Ruth was on my uh, was on my brain. If her character in I'm that movie was a drag Ruth, performance set to Rihanna's Breaking Dishes <laughs> dressed as Sissy Spacek. I see this is my always the thing that I say about drag race is and I get why they can't do it because rights issues are a bitch, but watching drag queens perform and lip sync and whatever is fantastic but the authentic experience of watching a drag queen in a club is inextricably tied to what weird little uh 
dialogue from <laughs> movies will they intersperse in their performances and it always gives me such a an appreciation and like a window into their creative soul and i'm just like that's what i want i want to know if somebody throws in sissy spacex saying everything from uh from in the bedroom in a drag performance <laughs> so rihanna's breaking dishes that tip is going from one dollar to five dollars i'm telling you what like that is that's just that's listen the, the on the center of, of that venn diagram the only problem is i am not a drag queen <laughs> exactly um i also noted the scene where they all go to the movies and uh claire and jonathan are mouthing along to the dialogue from all about eve endeared them both so much to me and also really really made me miss seeing repertory films in theaters again and i can't wait to i go completely back and agree that. and i realized that the era of this movie they wouldn't have had like a vhs to watch no, it at home no. but also shut the fuck up everyone is there to watch all about eve they're not talking they're just mouthing along like that's i think they're being i think they're being very well behaved I, it was uh, cute. That was the closest like moment where I felt like, oh, they are in love with each other. Right. You get a you got a little bit window into what their lives were before uh, Bobby showed up. Um, okay. I feel like we we sort of we brushed by this, no pun intended, but we really do need to discuss Robin Wright's bangs in this film. I know you oh mentioned God. the Sharon Stone and Courtney Cox illusions, but like they're quite bad. <laughs> They're quite bad. And be and it's I don't so, think they're supposed to be good though. But like she makes such a point of cutting his hair and being like, like, trust me, I know what I'm doing. And it's just like, do you? Because have you looked at you at this point? Like, yeah, but it was an era punk thing. No, like, I know. I know. And like new wave influences. Like people did bangs like that then. Yeah. Listen, it was a weird time. It was a crazy it time. It was truly like a the year 2004 of like i'm going to have multiple colors of hair dye actresses it is robin wright in a home at the end of the world it is kate winslet in eternal sunshine yeah there's got to be another example we'll think of one one last thing before we maybe transition into uh imdb game what did you think of the decision to end the movie where it did on the timeline where so much is left open-ended but is it really like jonathan hasn't died but jonathan will die and i was sort of i was grateful for the the gift of not having to watch jonathan die on screen i think Mm -hmm. that would have been unnecessarily punishing and yet it still leaves you on that because like Jonathan sort of walks ahead, very symbolically walks ahead to the house and Bobby uh, lingers a little bit and you get that sound of just like, oh, right. Like the thing that Bobby was always afraid of is Bobby is being left alone now. And mm-hmm. it's a poignant well, ending, like, but it's Bobby's also... whole journey feels like his life is defined by like a traumatic death uh, right. surrounding him, you know? And right. it's like, it feels like an inevitability for the rest of his life. I kind of felt two things. One, I was like, I have the absolute certainty that this is like the emotional ellipsis that the book ends and they just have the exact ending as the book. It's a very but book also, ending. also, like, yeah. especially, you know, having conversations, like, around things like It's a Sin right now. All listeners should be watching It's a Sin if you haven't seen it already. Very much um, so. yeah. Uh, it is meaningful to have, uh, I think, queer stories and gay stories where it's like, it is true to an emotion, like the 
like the horrors of a certain era and a certain generation, but like it is very valuable to um, not have that be the only end note or the only uh, defining factor of a story. I think if you end that way, it defines a character in a certain way. Yeah. Um, And I was glad that this is not how the movie chose to define. Yeah. Bobby and Jonathan. And I also feel like it's open-ended in that it doesn't close things off from him. Like, obviously he still has the relationship with uh, Sissy SpaceX character and it doesn't close off the possibility that Claire and the baby could return at some point. Like he Mm -hmm. talks about how he wants to give the house to the baby at some point and have that sort of be her inheritance almost. And, it's not denying anything he's, either. It's he's not hopeful. it's self-aware enough to know right. that you know what the inevitability will be. Yes. But it's not It doesn't the inevitability doesn't have to be the the end of the story. And Bobby remains hopeful without seeming the movie doesn't really paint him as naive, but it allows him to remain hopeful that like this home that he built and this family that he built for himself out of the like like the wreckage of his his youth really and like the terrible things that happened with his family in his youth um that it hasn't all been for nothing and that it's that it's mm-hmm. it is a legacy that he's able to you know hold and cherish and and keep and the fact that like they they spread the father's ashes at the um you know on the farm or wherever the field by the house and that they intend to do the same for Jonathan um, I don't know. Obviously, it's all very symbolic, but just like the idea of he's built now, he's not transient anymore. He's not sort of drifting from place to place, from Cleveland to New York to Phoenix to whatever. He's now built this home and it will be a place that other people can return to or that they can stay. And I don't know, that felt kind of beautiful to me. I think also with the life that he's built for himself you do kind of somewhat get the sense at this point and why i think it's also poignant that we're not ending with bobby alone is that you know the idea of him being alone isn't as traumatic traumatic because he has created a full life yes god i want to read this book again (laughs) <laughs> I know. I'm I'm definitely going to read the book. I mean, Michael Cunningham's books are very short and relatively yeah. easy to read. Yeah. He's a, but so like, I'll be reading. He's a wonderful writer. Yes. All right. Um, and do you want to move on to the IMDb game? I do. Let's do that. All right. Why don't you explain what the IMDb game is to listeners, yeah. new and old? Say, listen, uh, we do this every week. We end our episodes with the IMDb game. And what we do is we challenge each other with an actor or actress and we say, hey, Guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television shows or perhaps uh, voiceover work that they've done, we mentioned that up front. Uh, after two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. And if that's not enough, here comes the free-for-all of hints. And that's the IMDb game. All right. Joseph, would you like to give or guess first? Why don't I give first? Okay, who do you have for me? So this is actually, it's a repeat, but it's a repeat of one we did at 
the end of 2018. So it's been over two years. So uh, oh, that some... could be a completely different set of four movies. And it was one that you had given to me. So I feel like uh, this is fair game. So we talked about Michael Mayer's film credits. Uh, one of them being the film The Seagull, which, as I mentioned, I didn't really like very much, but I loved the performance that one Lizzie Moss gives in it. So ah. I'm going to give you Elizabeth Moss. I do, if I'm remembering the seagull correctly, it's another great um, Elizabeth Moth Smokes performance. Smokes and sneers. Yes. She's just yes. like, she's just so furious during the whole movie. I love it. <laughs> um, there is one television show on Elizabeth Moss's. Uh, which is probably The Handmaid's Tale and not Mad Men. It is, in fact, The Handmaid's Tale. Correct. Because she's won a bunch of awards for it. It's going to help her SEL out. Yeah. Um question is do i think it's too soon for the invisible man i think it's less that it's too soon and that it's more the invisible man made a lot of well (laughs) made a lot of covid money Um, (laughs) but it's also like that movie got a lot of attention when no movies got a dungeon um i'm gonna put a button on that but also loop back and because of the money thing i think us is on there very good us is on there cool hmm okay because of the lack of movies i don't think a shirley or her smell is still gonna show up seagull sure as hell is not gonna show up um i'm i'm guessing that one of the small ones is gonna be there but which one? The square isn't small, but I could see that on there. Is it the square? It's not the square. Strike one. Mm. Is Queen of Earth on there? Not Queen of Earth. Strike two. God damn it. All right. So your remaining years are 2014 and 2020. Well, 2020 is The Invisible Man. That is correct. The Invisible Man. Your instinct uh, was correct. <laughs> Um, okay, so 2014, I think Mad Men was still on. This is when she's starting to do small movies. Is it, um, maybe this showed up the last time. Is it the movie she did with one of the Duplices, um, The One I Love? It's The One I Love, and it did show up the last time. Good memory. Yes. Um, I love that you call him uh, Mark Dupless. I will now uh, call him Mark Dupless. Uh, they are the Duplesses. I, I've only heard it as Duplass, but that does sound too fancy schmancy now. It sounds a little highfalutin. I've never heard them say their own name. I've, I'm allowed to say Dupless. I, I fully support this. I'm into it. Dupless. What a handsome man. He is handsome. That's a good movie, too, the one I love. It's very... Uh, clever it's directed by malcolm mcdowell's son um wait and who's his mother is is his mother mary steenburgen am i wrong um, oh, that's interesting hold on i'm checking his imdb yes son of malcolm mcdowell and mary steenburgen charlie mcdowell he directed that film um that was a movie i went and saw a i think it was a festival it must have was it a tribeca film festival movie because i definitely saw that it would track um Yes, Tribeca Film Festival 2014, and I went in, and I saw, and I believe its past guest of ours, Rob Shear, was uh, publicist for it, Um, and he or his fellow publicist 
uh, gave me the press notes and they were just like, don't read them. And I was like, I was like, and oh, did it spoil it? Because I remember that being a movie that was like, know nothing before you watch it. They yeah, they were like, it's really, it. really best if you know nothing going into it. Don't read the press notes until after the movie. And I was just like, OK. Um, and yeah, it was. And, it, and it, so I knew at least going in that there was a surprise to it. But like, it's very, mm-hmm. very clever and it's funny and it's um, odd. Uh, highly recommended. I really liked that movie. Um, I remember so little about it. I remember not loving it, but thinking, yes, it was clever. Yeah. Uh, for you, I went down the Michael Cunningham route. Michael Cunningham, one of his other screen credits, includes writing an episode of the show Masters of Sex. Huh. The star of Masters of Sex is none other than Michael Sheen. Uh, I was so going to say, you, it's either have... Michael Sheen or Lizzie Kaplan, but she gave me Sheen. Okay. I'm not letting mean girls just slip on into this. <laughs> Any television you for Monsieur Sheen. Uh, there is one uh, piece of television in his known for. Is it Masters of Sex? It is Masters of Sex. It's not his performance on 30 Rock as Wesley Snipes, even though he is phenomenal <laughs> in those guest appearances. He's so good. Um, when he talks about the, he's enthusing, he says so many good re- line readings on 30 Rock, but the one where he's talking about the British versions of TV shows and, and she's, uh, just, he's described something that sounds exactly like Friends, but they call it Chums. And he just keeps saying Chums. And it's just, it's so funny. See how we help each other. I accompany you to Floyd's wedding. I hold your purse. This was meant to be. We're like Russ and Rebecca on Chums. Uh, he's wonderful. All right. Michael Sheen. Three more uh, films. Is one of them Frost slash Nixon? One is Frost slash Nixon. Okay. That's a lot of uh, S sounds for... Frost Nixon, for a film that, again, Best Picture nominee and a Best Actor nominee, I'm always surprised they didn't try to make a go for a fraudulent Best Supporting Actor campaign for Michael Sheen that year. I think they did. Did they? And it just didn't catch on. Right. Frost forward slash Nixon. Right. Thank you. Right. All right. So that's two out of four. Two more. See, the thing about Michael Sheen is he's in a bunch of underworlds and he's in a bunch of twilights. And I could see a world where one of those shows up, but also it would require me to know which underworlds and twilights he's in and like i know he's in the last twilight but like would it be that i'm just silently shaking because i'm laughing oh, i hate you is it one underworld and one twilight you are getting no hints yet you have not got a wrong guess twilight breaking dawn part two no fuck twilight breaking dawn part one no fuck Okay. <laughs> All right. So your years are 2006 and 2009. 2009 might be a Twilight, and 2006 might be an Underworld. The first Underworld, I'm pretty sure, was 2003, so it'd have to be a sequel to Underworld if it's Underworld. Wait, though. Is he in 2006? Love actually was 2003. Is he in one of those Richard Curtis... I don't think he's in Pirate Radio because I've seen that recently and I don't know if I remember him in that. I still need to watch that. Also known as The Boat That the Rocked. The Boat That Rocked. It's okay. It's a lot of, you know, uh, nice British actors in it. Um, 
not my favorite of the Richard Curtis's, but the, you know, he's done so many, many good things. Okay. 2000. Doesn't matter. It's not one of them. No, it's not. Um, 2009. So the first Twilight, I'm pretty sure was 2008. And I don't think New Moon was the very next year. And even if it was, I don't think he shows up until at least the third one. So I'm going to say not a Twilight. So what would another Michael Sheen 2009? (sighs) My babe, you are missing a huge one. Yeah. Speaking of fraudulent supporting actor campaigns. Oh, that's interesting. Um, He's not in Notes on a Scandal. That's Bill Nye. He's not in... um, Fraudulent Supporting Campaigns. Uh, Is it the 2009 one that's the subject of a fraudulent supporting actor campaign? It's 06. It's 06. We're going to be talking about this on another podcast. We can't oh, talk about the movie. Oh, of course. For that he's uh he's Tony Blair in The Queen. It's The Queen, of course. It's the Queen. I realize that's Helen Mirren's movie, but he is a fucking lead of that movie and they ran him supporting. Once again, just like Frost Nixon, he's quite good in both of those, I feel like. Again, we're not allowed to talk about that movie. Mm-hmm. We're going to save it for when we're on screen drafts right. talking about 20th century supporting actress or best actress winning movies. I agree. All right. All right. Good call. Okay. So 2009. Hype for that episode. 2009. You got to loop back to an earlier uh, idea you had. Is it an under Underworld? It's underworld, like, annihilation, underworld evolution, underworld uh, Red Dead Redemption, underworld... Not giving it to you until you get the subtitle. Underworld um, uh, New Moon, underworld uh, and the Prisoner of Azkaban, underworld... Um, the poster for this movie is Bill Nye reading your tweets. <laughs> Sitting in a throne, very upset and stern. Is it Rise of the Lycans? Rise of the Lycans. There you are. Okay. I I appreciate, honestly, I'm glad that you made me do that. That was good for me. That was a good exercise for me. Okay. Well done. You know what Michael Sheen is really good in? What? Brad's status. He is good. You know what's a really good movie? Brad's Brad's status. status. It is. Mike White, man, like, kills it. All right. He did that and Beatrice at dinner like in the same year. Yeah. So good. So good. So great. All right. All right. I think that is our episode. If you want more This Head Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Again, uh, in the next week, we'll be hyping the May miniseries, so definitely check us out there. We'll be having a listener's choice coming for you guys and uh, a lineup of really uh, fun movies I'm excited to talk about. This episode is supported in part by Gateway Film Center, a nonprofit cinema committed to supporting storytellers. Authentic stories can inspire new ideas, entertain, push boundaries, spark new levels of empathy, and advance social change. To learn more about their program and plan your visit for award season weekend, please visit gatewayfilmcenter.org. 
Joe, tell our listeners where they can find more of you and your bangs. Yes, you can find my mutilated bangs. on. Uh, actually, I am getting my first uh, post-COVID haircut this week, so we'll see what happens to my poor bangs. Um, oh, your long hair is gone. It, and not a minute too soon. I'm so fucking Please sick of it. Please have Robin Wright give you your haircut. I, I will. I will request Robin Wright to uh, give me my first haircut. I will not be posting photos of it on Twitter because fuck y'all. Um, but you can find me, lovely listeners, and I love you, on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed spelled R-E-I-D. I'm also on Letterboxd uh, under the same name, Joe Reed, R-E-I-D. All right, and you can find me and my bangs on uh, Twitter at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. Also on Letterboxd under the same name. We'd like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts, and now Spotify. Five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So uh, pass that joint to us, your pseudo-adoptive housewife mothers, and uh Tell us it's all love in it with a great review. That's all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Just a little bit,